to follow along, I'm going to read from Mark chapter 1. Look at verses 21 and 22 of Mark chapter 1 this morning. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Let us pray. Father, it's truly True what we have just sung, that our drops of grief are not enough to repay the debt of love we owe. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for our unthankfulness, but that we would have a heart of gratefulness, a heart broken, and we would, as the hymn writer did, respond by giving up all of ourselves to you for your glory and honor. And we ask that you would open our ears that you would open our hearts that we might receive these things and respond to you as you teach us, as you help us grow, as you glorify yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Perhaps you, like I, have, have watched a movie in which the, the opening scene as the movie comes on, it's a still picture. And it may be in sepia tones, and you see buildings and streets and people, but they're not moving, and you're waiting for the opening credits to go by. It's like, well, this isn't a movie. It's not moving pictures. And you're watching the scroll of the, the credits go by, and none of us are really interested in what's on there because I cannot name a single cinematographer. I don't care who the casting director was. I want to watch the movie. But we, we see that still picture and then all of a sudden that picture goes to color and then we see people starting to move. The action begins to go. And I think Mark writes in that kind of a style. We get some verbs that he uses. They're, they're like a snapshot. We, we have that picture and, and we're looking at that picture and we're saying, okay, that's what that is, and then the action starts. And sometimes with Mark, the action goes really fast. As you already know, he uses the word immediately, uh, where things just kind of flow and go and go. And we kind of get caught up in that, thinking, okay, Mark is wanting to push us on. And that is true in some cases. Here in verse 21, we have the snapshot. They went into Capernaum. It was a city there in the region of Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus picked up Peter and James, uh, Peter and Andrew, and then James and John, and, and said, follow me. And, and we see them, they went into Capernaum. But then he uses the word, and immediately, this is, now the movie starts. Now the action starts. As this as the director has said, you know, lights, camera, action, here we go. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and began to teach. We get a feeling that, that Jesus is not one of those that lets the grass grow under his feet. He, he's got a very short time to do his ministry and to go and to teach. And he's, he's bringing his disciples with him and he, he's 
that man that we know from the Gospels. I must be about my father's business. I, I must enter into this ministry that he has given me to do. And so we see them moving on. And in this passage, we, we see that he goes into the synagogue and he, and he teaches them. And we kind of think of the other Gospels where he rose up to, to preach and he opened the scrolls and he read and he taught. And we see those things and we want to move on with Mark to the next section. And in that same synagogue, at this very moment that he was there, there was the demon-possessed man. And we want to move on to the exorcism. You know, we want to go, whoa, what, what do you think about demons? And what do you think about exorcism? And we want to move on. And I'm saying, slow down, not so fast. Because if we move on in that kind of immediacy, one, we miss that, that Mark is using that, yes, to show us those things, but also to, just to mark the scene changes. And if we change that scene too soon, if we don't stay with our Holy Spirit director here on this, I think that we do a great disservice, not just to the passage, and our brother used that big 25-cent word, the pericope of, of the passage here. What is it saying as a whole? But I, I think we do great, if not great injustice, at least we lose sight of the majesty and the wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ. The people that heard him speak that day, that Sabbath day, and they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. There was something about his teaching there that set him apart from all the other teachers of Scripture from the beginning of time to Jesus' day and everyone who would come after he is the one who has authority. He is the one who is capable of amazing people. And again, I would say, not so fast. Let's look at what Mark brings us here. Let us look at this episode because it shows us the character and the effect of Jesus' teaching, who teaches as one having authority and not as the scribes. Capernaum, again, as I said, is a, a, a city that's on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there are those who believe that uh, perhaps its importance was that it was on a, a, a caravan route, coming up from Jerusalem in the south, headed up further north to Damascus. And, and we know this is where Peter lives with his wife and with um, his mother-in-law. And it is possible that Jesus was staying at Peter's house, that Jesus was, was living there at this time when he collected Andrew and Peter and James and John, and they, they go back into Capernaum. And he goes to the synagogue. And again, we get that sense of immediacy here that the first Sabbath day after they arrived in Capernaum, he is there in the synagogue, as was his, apparently his practice. And, this, and the origin of the synagogue, if some of you could help me, I, I don't really know where it comes from. It, it, the synagogue just kind of appears, perhaps in the, in the post-exilic, uh, era and, and after the, the Old Testament times, second, third century BC. But it, it seems the norm here for the Jews to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. 
And the evidence of that comes not just from the New Testament, but the rabbinic literature of the time, uh, Josephus, the historian, uh, even pagan literature mentions the synagogues. And, and the synagogue model, we don't really know what the building would have looked like. Um, this building here was originally a Jewish synagogue, as you, some of you know, built in 1929. Uh, I think about today, this would be the 90th birthday of this synagogue. Um, and there was the custom that there would be the, the bima, which was the platform, and they would have a niche uh, back where the Torah would be stored, and they would go to that place and bring out the Torah to read. And it probably began with, with prayers, and then reading of not just the, the Torah, but then someone would read from the prophets. And if there was a competent adult male who was willing and able, or in the, perhaps in the case of, of Jesus, the, the ruler of the synagogue would, would point out a distinguished visitor to the gathering that day and ask him to give a sermon, uh, to give an exposition of the word of God. And so this is perhaps what happened. We know from one of the other Gospels that Jesus was invited to do that. And, and there was probably a lectionary. There was probably a, a prescribed reading. Uh, Jesus, in that case, got to pick his own reading. I uh, read from the book of Isaiah. But what does it say about the people? They were amazed at his teaching. Again, the, the New American Standard translation doesn't do justice to the word. It, it literally means struck out. He strikes them out, N not in the sense of, of baseball that they whiffed on something, although I think people do whiff when they hear the word of God, but it means they were driven from their normal or customary state of mind. They were struck dumb. They were struck out of that what they were expecting to hear or what they were in the habit of hearing. It, it struck them out of that mode or their action or their reaction to the teaching. And it created in them a sense of, of, of great feeling this, this amazement or this being dumbstruck, it could have been fear. It, it could literally mean a wonder and an awe. And it could have been a feeling uh, of joy at what they heard. But it has always been thus, I think, that when a man or woman hears the word of God being preached and expounded upon, our initial reaction, I think, for many is that we think it's beneath us. It is too low for us. It is a duty or a response or a need that is, that is lower than, than I want to move to. Alfred Edersheim in his book says, but there is in that man evidence of his origin and destiny which always and involuntarily responds to the presentation of the higher. In other words, there is something about the fact that we are in the image of God. We are created in his image and are, as the writer to the, in Ecclesiastes says, the eternity is in the heart of man. There is something about that that means that, that man will have generally one of two responses. Either he will have that fear and awe of God and his word, or he will think it is beneath him and below him and of contempt. 
And yes, there seems to be some shade in there, but generally there is a division when people hear the word of God. I think it was the missionary Jim Elliott who said that, that when I present the gospel to people, I visualize myself as a signpost. Either this path and I will honor God and follow him or you will take that path, path and you will despise him and you will reject the word of God. But we know from the scriptures that the word of God is living and active, the preacher to the Hebrews says, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When Christ taught, when he preached, when he expounded on the word, he was that sword of the spirit. He was, as the scripture says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word was presented in a way that struck out people. It struck them dumb. They could not help but react. And again, I think the scriptures teach us that they re some react with joy and awe and respect and fear of the word of God and some reject and hate the word of God. But is Jesus the only great minister? We, we look in scripture and, and we see that other men were, were tasked with the office of preaching God's word. I think of Moses in Deuteronomy. God gives him certain things to do. It says, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give them. Moses undertook to expound the law, it says. The Lord our God made a covenant with us, Moses said. God made us a covenant and, and we have that responsibility to follow in that covenant. He says, you shall fear the Lord your God and you shall worship him. Moses would have gotten an A in homiletics class. He had all the shuns. He had the exposition. He had the application. And he had the exhortation. And he had it all in his preaching. And for a time, anyway... The people responded positively. In Exodus 24, it says that Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And what was their reaction? Well, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. There was something about them in that reading that caused them to say, yeah, we want to do these things. We want to follow in these things. When Elijah was given the task of speaking for God. In 1 Kings, we read about that widow at Zarephath, I think it was, and, and she had the, the sun and the oil and the bread, you know, the, the wheat was, uh, flour was running out, and this is what we read in 1 Kings. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. And it goes on to say the life of the child was returned to him after he died and he was revived. And then the woman said to Elijah, 
Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. There was a response from her when, when Elijah pronounced that the Lord was going to do these things and she saw for herself, she responded with joy and, and great delight that she had her son return and she was able to supply his needs. But how about Ezekiel? Very strange when I read these words in the English of what God said to Ezekiel, son of man, he said, eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. But what did he warn him? I have sent you to them who should listen to you, yet they will not be willing. The whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. See, again, we see that division. When the word is proclaimed, there are some who receive it with joy and some who reject it and become stubborn and obstinate and stiff-necked. And so it is with Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and, and we read, we've been hearing from Lamentations. You know, we, <laughs> there's a reason why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He is faithful to expound the truth that God has given him, and yet the people will not respond. And it goes on and on to Hosea, to even to John the Baptist. What did we see with John the Baptist? He preached the word of God. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And the people at first were very joyous, and they followed him, and he had a very great following. And we can see that these men were faithful. They accepted the word of God as from God, God's word. Many people today do not, they look at the Bible and say, well, that was written by men, but they received it as what it is. This is the word of almighty God. And they believed that the message was a revelation of God to his people that must be proclaimed. And these men did that under, under great pressure and under great um, persecution on many people's part. They publicly proclaimed the word of God to men. And they encouraged a response. E even if it was implied, they encouraged people to respond to that. Moses said, you know, we, we, God has given us a covenant. We must follow it. And they knew that it would have an effect on people. They knew that it, people couldn't remain neutral hearing the word of God. If truly it was preached as the word of God, faithfully proclaimed, there would be an effect, either unbelief or belief. But their job was to proclaim. But what about Jesus? Why do we read, and they were amazed at his teaching? The scriptures tell us again, and the word became flesh. The word of God became flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the final word. That's why he stands apart. In Isaiah 61, we read of what Jesus said was true of him. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. These things that were proclaimed by Isaiah hundreds of years before were true in Christ. And that's why he could stand in front of the assembly, in front of the synagogue and read the passage and says, this word has been fulfilled in your hearing. Because he is the word and he is the final word. 
The writer of Hebrews says it very clearly for us. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. How was he able to teach them as one who had authority? Because the book that he was expounding was the book that was written about him. He is the author, and therefore he could speak uh, with authority on everything it said. He was the author and the expounder of it at once. He was the law giver, so he could speak very competently about the law. The word authority here in his teaching that it says is a word that means liberty. Liberty to do as one pleases. But it also implies that if you're at liberty to do what you pleases, you have the right to govern, that you have the right to rule. And it also implies that you have the ability, the strength and the power of one whose will and commands must be obeyed. You see, this authority is an authority because he holds in his hand the absolute and immovable truth, the truth of himself, the truth of the one true God. So when we read these things, some say, you know, he was teaching, and they equate it to that he had a dogmatic authoritative manner, that his presence in the, in the pulpit or on the, on the bima was powerful and it was authoritative. But we know, living in our world, we see the YouTube, we see the TED Talks, we, we, we can read about men who, who had that effect. They, we, we call them people who have charisma. It is, it is said of the Dr. Martin Luther King when he gave his famous I Have a Dream speech that he, he, when he looked at his prepared notes, he was standing there in front of the Lincoln Memorial and with thousands of people around and he was kind of stuttering. He was kind of halting and he looked on the dais and someone kind of gave him a, a look like, you can do this. And he put down his notes and for 17 minutes he held them spellbound with his dream and his vision for the future of his people. We know that men can do that. So this, is, this isn't what made Jesus authoritative. This is not what made him stand apart. He was not that just his manner or his power. And it wasn't just a mere exposition of things because he expounded with authority because he was the author of it. He was the light, not just shining in the darkness, but a light that would penetrate into the mind of man. He was a force that would pierce into the heart of man. In Proverbs 8, we read of what Jesus claimed to be of himself. He says, the Lord possessed me. Speaking of, of personification of wisdom, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. When he established the heavens, I was there. Then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight. When the heavens were formed, he says, I was there. When the sea was given its boundary, and God said, thus far and no farther, 
I was there. When he put the circle of the earth on the face of the deep, I was there. I was working with him. I was part of that creation. I was there. I have this authority because I am. And Derek Kidner writes, the personifying of wisdom far from overshooting liberal, literal truth was a preparation for its full statement. Since the agent of creation was no mere activity of God, but the Son, his eternal word, wisdom, and power. Jesus has the authority. He amazes people because he is. And perhaps, to me, one of the most vivid explanations of this or pictures that we see in the scriptures of this was given by mere men. In John chapter 7, we read about the division that grew, not just among the people. The multitudes were following Jesus. They were going crazy for, for Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were, were dumbfounded. It's like, what's happening? And there was even a division among the Pharisees and scribes themselves. And they, some wanted to seize him, John says, but no one laid hands on him. And they sent out officers from the, the, the Sanhedrin, I guess, from the chief priests and the scribes. They sent out these officers and they came back and the chief priests and the Pharisees said, why did you not bring him? And the officers responded by saying, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. There is no wonder that they were amazed, that they were struck out, for he was teaching them as one having authority. And there are some commentators who look at this scripture and say, well, you know, the word one, if you look in your Bibles, when, they, when your Bibles type this in English and they put a word in italics, that means that the translators have put a word in there that's not in the original language. And they have put in this little word one and they're going, but that weakens the passage. It just should be, he spoke to them as having authority and I'm saying, no, there is only one. There is one having authority and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other preacher who is like him and ever will be like him. And yet, he has ordained that men should preach him. And that's why Paul says, I don't preach a lot of things, but I do major on one thing. I preach Christ and him crucified because he is the one who has authority. And Mark goes on to tell us that he was preaching to them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And I believe, if my reading, that the scribes are not just people who copy the Bible. Yes, there are some who, and there are rules that I was reading about. Uh, when they copied the Bible from one manuscript and they're making a copy to be distributed as another manuscript, and they might write for days and days and pages and pages, and if they found more than three mistakes, the entire thing was thrown in the, to, to be buried. That they had to be so exact and so careful and there were scribes who did that but these scribes I think that we meet in the scriptures here in the New Testament were ones who had 
hearken back as successors to Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7, we're told that Ezra was a priest, but he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And this is what it says about Ezra. He had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. He had worked at this. He had studied. He had given the work to studying the law, not only to practice it, but to teach it. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see Nehemiah and Ezra working together where they brought the scroll out and they taught. And it says they explained so to give the sense of what was happening. So they not only read it, they expounded upon it. And, they, and it says that they understood the words, that they were not only just doing this, but they, the people had understanding, that they were effective teachers, that they were able to make people see what it meant. And they said, you know, do not grieve, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. That they were not preaching themselves, they were not doing it for their own edification, but that the joy of the Lord would be in them. This was the effect of them. And so the scribal method that was given to these men that we see in the New Testament was to emulate Ezra, to study, to interpret, to use the law. And the most sacred duty of a scribe was to never teach anything other than exactly as it had been transmitted to them by their own teacher. But what we see in the New Testament is that they followed that as tradition and wrote, but not with the heart. Piety was reduced to external formalism. Honor was demanded, but not earned. Tradition blocked the truth of God. James Farrar was an Anglican pastor in the late 1800s. And I don't know quite where he got all of this, but in his study of the New Testament and looking back at what these scribes were like, this is what he wrote. That their teaching of the scribes was, quote, at once erudite and foolish, at once contemptuous and mean, never passing a hair's breadth beyond the carefully watched boundary line of commentary and precedent, full of balanced inference, an orthodox hesitancy, an impossible literalism, intricate with legal pettiness and labyrinthian system, elevating memory above genius and repetitions among originality, and mostly occupied with things infinitely little." Jesus taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. And he rebukes the scribes and Pharisees, does he not? He says, you know, the prophets wrote about you guys. The people, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. And he goes on to tell them, you know what you're doing? You're invalidating the word of God. In your news and notes, I wrote a quote from John Owen. 
He says, a mere external doctrinal revelation of the divine nature and properties without any exemplifications or real representation of them was not sufficient unto the end of God and the manifestation of himself. In other words, men like this, like these scribes, were not going to cut it. That the representation of God and his revelation, his word, and the word must become flesh. And we must see Jesus, and we must listen to him. Jesus taught them, not out of tradition. He was independent of tradition. Just read the Gospels and you'll see. You know, there was a lot of traditions. That, no, they didn't, they didn't pass muster with him. He preached with immediate inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And unlike these men, at least as far as we can see, he preached with compassion. In Matthew chapter 9, we see that it's not just the act of preaching, not just to be seen as an authority. His heart was there, and it says, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And I think that's what amazed these people is the scribes taught them from tradition. They taught them from rote. They taught them in a mechanical way, but their heart was not with them. They had no compassion. And you see that with Jesus, that was not so. He was one having authority. He was teaching them and they were amazed, not as the scribes, but as the only son of God. He taught them, he loved them, he had compassion for them. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that, again, you would teach us. And we ask that you would give us a, a heart, a, a desire to read your word and to see Jesus, to, to understand more what he was like and how he taught and how he interacted with his disciples. If we can but keep up with him, that you would help us to learn and, and grow in these things. But Father, I do also pray for the, the men in the pulpits in this country and around the world who claim the name of Jesus Christ, that you would grant us but a bit of that authority, that power, that ability to proclaim, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Because truly, Father, truly, we have come to know there is no one who speaks as this man speaks. Help us to listen to him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, if I can find it. I still can't find it. Paul writes, to this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, 
according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us, let us pray. Father, again, we ask that you would do these things, as Paul has said, that you would be glorified in us and we would be glorified in you. Amen.